Okay, Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast, a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker, and today on the pod, we are joined by Zach Kaiser of Mushroom Cult, a mycology cultivation and education outfit based in Denver, Colorado. Zach's been teaching cultivation workshops for several years now in the Denver area and comes to us as an ardent and impassioned mycology educator whose goal is to connect people with first principles of mycology and to nurture and enrich the imaginative lens through which they approach their home cultivation practice. In other words, seeing mushroom cultivation as a holistic and meditative enterprise with a guiding ethos rather than a strictly clinical series of cold and metallic lab procedures. As the mushroom revolution accelerates exponentially into mainstream society, an incredible opportunity exists for people with wildly divergent backgrounds and life experiences to claim their seat at the table. And that's precisely what's so exciting and uncommon about mycology. The rapidly growing mycology industry is driven largely by people outside of the scientific establishment people who are tinkering around in their garages, reminiscent of the early days of Silicon Valley or of the home brewing culture of the 90s. Some of the most profound scientific, industrial, and social breakthroughs of our era will likely come at the hands of people who have never been gilded into the white-frocked order of the scientific establishment. These breakthroughs are occurring and will continue to occur in inner-city Oakland and in Denver, Colorado, and in rural Africa driven by people who have no traditional scientific or academic pedigree, and also by people who are electrical engineers and fashion designers and urban planners by trade. Zach Kaiser and Mushroom Cult are helping to marshal this rising tide of home cultivators and citizen scientists. And we're gonna take a deep dive into the how and the why of all of that right now. So without further ado, K Pasa Mufasa, Zach Kaiser, welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. So Zach, You've been teaching mushroom cultivation workshops and mentoring cultivators for several years now in the Denver area. Can you tell us a little bit about your workflow and the guiding ethos of your cultivation philosophy? Yeah, so I I got into mushroom cultivation when I went to college uh, around uh, in the early 2000s. And I went to CSU in Denver and it's a horticultural agricultural school. And I really learned the lab procedures and was really into plants. And that kind of got me into uh, the world of fungi because I, I had a collection of orchids. And an interesting fact about orchids is that the seeds of the orchid don't have the nutrition packet that most seeds that you're aware of have. So they need to be colonized and attacked by a fungi. And then they parasitize that fungi in order to germinate and produce the beautiful orchids that you might find at, at the hardware store or you being in Mexico, you might be able to find some just outside the door. Um, so that kind of got me introduced to the world of fungi. And I kind of explored that a little bit in college and learned the cultivation techniques, did a little project about cultivation and kind of a business plan for uh, a mushroom farm in college. And I kind of put that on hold for a while, but, you know, tinkered with it over the next several years. And, um, as soon as I got my own place, I started to, um, play with cultivation, cultivating different species. I think I'm up to maybe 20 different species of, of mushroom kind of as a hobbyist. So I basically pick a mushroom of interest and learn its life cycle and cultivate it out, get it to fruit. And then I pretty much move on to another species. And then 
I noticed on a local mycological society website that somebody had just asked, how do you grow mushrooms? So I invited her over and she brought her husband and I just did a mind dump on all the procedures and all the different techniques of how to grow mushrooms. And they encouraged me to teach classes. So I uh, connected with a local kind of a, a free university, just sort of a uh, independent school and started teaching classes. And it was at first pretty rough, just, just a mind dump, but over the next several classes, asking people, you know, what can I improve? What were some of the problems? Really dialed in a, a, a curriculum, if, if you want to call it that, um, on how to instruct people on cultivating mushrooms. There's been very little innovation in home cultivation technology since the arrival of mushroom growing as a form of citizen science and exploration around the midpoint of the 20th century. People are still using repurposed everyday materials and household items to grow and scale their workflows in the cultivation space. We're talking spray painting the bottoms of plastic tubs, drilling holes into these tubs, the use of pressure cookers. I mean, it's bootstrapping, much like the early days of the home brewing scene. Do you suppose we'll see an increase in innovation and technology at the home cultivation level? Yeah, so that's a main reason why I'm teaching mushroom cultivation. It's because each person has their own background, their own experience, their own expertise. It could be world travel. It could be marketing. It could be just connecting with other people. It could be podcast. It could be um, maybe you have engineering background or a material science background or a chemistry background. And most of those people don't also have a cultivation background. They don't have that introduction to mycology. They don't know how to work with fungi. So what I would like to do is introduce a broad stroke of how can you work with fungi to people who have expertise like physics and manufacturing and just all those expertise that are out there. So I want to connect people with fungi so that they can apply their knowledge and experience to make that innovation, even more than just innovation. You know, I see innovation as you follow a recipe and you change a few ingredients, but the potential in mycology is much more than innovation. You could really invent and revolutionize the whole industry of both home cultivation and commercial cultivation. If you have just basic knowledge of, of how to work with fungi and you bring your expertise to it, you could really transform the whole industry. Uh, and so what I like to teach in the class is not recipes. I like to pass on, you know, if I can flatter myself a little bit, I like to pass on first principles and try to give background understanding rather than a recipe because anyone can follow a recipe, but not everyone can revolutionize an industry. And if I give basic principles to people who are experts in other industries, they can really transform it. One great example. It's kind of a recent innovation. It's called PF tech or brown rice flour technique. And it's basically taking a small Mason jar and making an, an injection lid, taking a mineral vermiculite. It's an ex expanded mineral that can hold water. It's used in horticulture and uh, it's, it's just a, a, basically a mineral sponge and then coating that with brown rice so that each particle of vermiculite, the mineral has a nutrient powder over it that is filled in this small jar. It's sterilized in a pressure cooker, or you can get away with pasteurizing it. 
And from there, you can inject spores or a liquid culture and carry that process with only one procedure. You can carry it from spore to fruiting in only one procedure. It's, it really is a genius idea. And I, I encourage everyone, even if you're an experienced mushroom cultivator, if you've never tried the PF tech or brown rice flour technique, get your mind around it, play with it. Let your imagination wander like this. It's kind of a weird idea to take a rock and cover it with flour to grow mushrooms. That was not a normal recipe following pro thought process. That was something thinking way outside the norm. And I think really anyone who learns how to use, you know, work with fungi could have that out of the box thinking and develop something like PF tech. Um, the monotub was also pretty revolutionary. Um, just taking a plastic tub and poking a couple of holes and producing a, a really small bulk, follow the rules. You run into a challenge and you just try to, you know, patch it with duct tape. So I would encourage all of the listeners to take one of those recipes like a monotub or BRF tech, or even some of the more complicated auger techniques or liquid culture, follow that recipe as a jumping off point for original thinking, apply some, some of your own personal experience and see if you can really think outside of the box and help us move mycology or, you know, like I, I kind of think mushroom cultivation is not necessarily mycology, but let's try to move the cultivation field forward through original thinking. That's a really beautiful way to frame it. I have a degree in media studies and a background in the art of media production. I believe that people working in their garages and in their bedrooms and these citizen scientists who are exploring and researching and developing and solving problems with mushrooms, this is the podcast thesis. It's this idea of connecting people with very divergent backgrounds to the art of cultivation and the magic of mycelial intelligence and seeing how they can apply that to solve all of the very many pressing issues that we're up against as a planetary collective, both on the micro and the macro level. I believe that we can undesign and redesign the world with a lot of these mycology related solutions. And we're seeing that as so many industries are being disrupted. And it seems like every week, every day, there's a new bombshell or breakthrough that's dropping in the world of mycology. To me, this is why in-person workshops are so important is because when you're first getting into cultivation, there's an overwhelming amount of information and misinformation that's available online. Being able to work in person with an experienced cultivator and to engage and directly observe and be mentored by cultivators like yourself, that's an enormous asset in this space. Yeah, it's, um, I, I agree. My, my philosophy is follow the recipe, but also thinks outside the box. And also if you start with first principles, that helps you sort through the garbage that's on the internet. There's some really, really great information on the internet and there's some really wacky stuff because people will just publish, people can publish anything. And it's really, and that's one reason I'm doing the class because even getting a book, um, it's really hard to read the book and then translate that into real life. So that's where the, the in-person hands-on, whether you go to Guatemala or Denver, Colorado, getting that hands-on personalized touch will help you as you leave the class, sort through all that stuff that's on the internet, you'll have a higher level of thinking. Alan Rockefeller, I'm really a big fan of him. Uh, what he's managed to do somehow is make a lifestyle of traveling around the US and Mexico 
and documenting all the different mushroom species that he finds in, in a really technical way, which is uh, really awe-inspiring. I think a missing link there is collecting the actual genetics. He's, he's taking the photos and he's um, making samples and like he's doing the right thing scientifically and also taking the genetics, like he's, he's uh, mapping the genetics. So the next level would be actually taking the, the living tissue, whether it's spores or uh, actual live cultures, because when you look out into the, the world, each organism is a factory of chemicals. It's a factory of amazing detail. And mushrooms especially, or fungi in general, they are factories of micro-machines that cut up molecules and build molecules, and they communicate through chemistry, and they cooperate across kingdoms with plants and animals. So there's a, it's a library of chemical machines, whether it's a poisonous mushroom or a psychoactive mushroom or an edible mushroom, all of these things are libraries of incredible complexity. And if we are just taking a photo of that and not capturing the live genetics so that we can do the analysis, which is, which is kind of difficult. It's not something that I personally can do. Um, but I would, I would just like people to think about, I found a mushroom. How can I save those genetics so that we can do um, the practical applied mycology of actually doing the study of how the living organism works? I'm really stoked on your YouTube channel, which is Mushroom Cult, which I'll link to the episode, especially on the videos where you experiment with cloning wild mushrooms and then cultivating them in your home laboratory. Uh, in particular, you have a video where you cloned a wild puffball. I thought that was imaginative and inspiring. Puffballs interest me a great deal as they can grow quite large, up to several feet in diameter, and are wildly versatile as an edible. When you slice them open, they look like a giant loaf of miracle sourdough bread. And you can freeze them and slice them like bread and you can use them as chicken or as a tofu substitute, all kinds of stuff. Use your imagination. So you cloned a wild puffball mushroom to initiate an experiment of cultivating this wild strain at home. I'm curious about the results of that wild puffball cloning experiment. Sure, so I am primarily just trying to collect genetics and I would like to walk some of those species all the way through to fruiting. Uh, the puffball I found in Evergreen, Colorado, it was fresh and it hadn't, it was, it was really, really fresh and firm. So I cracked it open. You can see it on the YouTube, cracked it open. I cut a small sample and I put it on a, a Petri dish that had a substance called auger, which is kind of like jello. It's a nutrient, um, it's a nutrient substrate in a small clear container and the mycelium that comprises that mushroom, the puffball, began to grow on that auger plate. And at this point, that's as far as I've really gotten. My plan is to try to grow them out in a monotub and see if it's possible. Um, but the next step from auger would be either to make a liquid culture or move it on to what's called uh, hydrated grain or make a grain spawn. So you would take something like wheat or rye or millet, uh, some kind of a seed, and you would take a section of that auger gel that has the mycelium growing on it, move it onto a hydrated grain and the mycelium will grow around each one of those little seeds. And that can be spread into sawdust or compost or yeah, usually it would be sawdust or compost. And from there you can move it to outdoor beds or you can sometimes fruit them in bags or in monotubs. So the process is really 
starting with the mushroom tissue, moving to auger, going from auger to grain and grain to a bulk substrate. That would be a standard practice, but you can shortcut that whole thing. There's lots of other, there's a lot of rabbit holes that you can shortcut every one of those steps. Um, but more to your question, um, a recent project is I was hiking in the woods last fall and I found a stick that had some interesting ropey mycelium growing on it. And I just brought it home in a Ziploc bag. Um, I, I forgot to even document where I got it. It was just sort of like, oh, that's interesting. And I stuck it in a Ziploc bag. And over the winter, I started seeing mushroom pins growing on that stick. And so I took that mushroom pin and I put it on a Petri plate that had water auger on it. And water auger is interesting because it doesn't have that nutrient, the, the nutrient sugar. So the mushroom pin was able to send mycelium across that, that water gel without having bacteria and yeast eating all the sugars. So it kind of, it was a selective media in order to grow that wild mushroom on the auger. And now I've moved that onto grain and I've moved that onto sawdust in a, in a bag. And hopefully soon I will have actual results from capturing a wild mushroom and bringing it all, all the way to fruit. And the interesting thing about this one is I have no idea what kind of mushroom it is. And so my, my hope is that I will send a fruited mushroom or at least a photo over to Alan Rockefeller to get his expert advice. And maybe I will send him a sample and see if we can get some genetic testing to verify that or at least document it. This is an extraordinary time to be interested in mycology or to develop an interest. There are hundreds of thousands of undocumented mushrooms popping up everywhere in every part of the world. And only a fraction of existing mushrooms are currently documented and understood, and in many cases utilized. There's so much scientific, industrial, and imaginative potential laying dormant and unrecognized in fields and forests all over the world. Where I live in Mexico, there are upwards of 13,000 different types of mushrooms by some estimates. And, and many of those are largely unknown or unstudied in the scientific canon. It's staggering to me to imagine the size of this blind spot when you start thinking about the historical uses and discoveries related to fungi. When you're just starting to get into cultivation, it can be very intimidating as someone who comes from a non-laboratory or science-y background. I find that blue oyster mushrooms are a great strain to start with because the, the oyster pretty much eats everything in its path and it's quite resilient and hard to contaminate the grow if you follow basic protocol. I'm a very new cultivator. I've had great success with blue oyster mushrooms in plastic bags full of pasteurized straw. If you've never grown mushrooms, what I recommend doing is purchasing a mushroom kit that's ready to fruit, like an oyster, one that is fully colonized. It's a sawdust block. All you have to do is cut it open and put it in high humidity. That would be step one. And step two is to try PF tech or brown rice flour tech. So you can just get a few tools like a, a pressure cooker. You can even use an instant pot, a couple of jars, wide mouth jars, smaller, probably the smaller, the better and some brown rice flour and vermiculite and water. You can use, you can start with a spore syringe or liquid culture, which those are easy to find on the internet. Um, so while you're fruiting out that, that block that you purchased, you can play with PF tech, which could take, you know, maybe four weeks and use something like a modified monotub. Uh, I saw someone calling it a polytub. It's halfway between a monotub and a shotgun fruiting chamber. So you can go through PF tech. And while you're learning PF tech, while that's happening, it's, it's really simple. You can get the tools and materials to do auger 
So you'll find some Petri plates. Maybe you'll do the pre-pour method. Uh, I have that on my YouTube. Uh, learn how to use auger and start learning how to do aseptic technique and do some of those transfers from mycelium from one plate to the next, or try putting spores on auger, um, which there's a pretty big learning curve for working with aseptic, aseptic technique, um, using a still air box or a laminar flow hood. And you can kind of work through the harder things while you have the easy, the easy win of, of the pre-made kit and the kind of more hands-on PF tech. And then you can really dig into the, the advanced techniques while that's all going. So if you're really serious, I, I would recommend a threefold strategy of getting started. Connecting people with divergent backgrounds and life experiences to the art of mushroom cultivation will inevitably yield new techniques and applications and overall good mushroom juju and potential. For example, some good friends of mine are a wonderful couple who have backgrounds as an electrical engineer and a psychotherapist, respectively. Shout out Kevin and Kirsten Strieber. What's up? And they're getting into cultivation and the mushroom flow zone. And it's super exciting to see this magnetic potential that's galvanized when more wonderful people jump on board the mushroom revolution and bring their unique talents and intelligence and perspectives to the table. Now, let's talk about another video on your channel where you experiment with different fruiting techniques for the jack-o'-lantern mushroom, also known as the ghost mushroom. I saw that in the video on your channel, you experimented with side fruiting one bag of jack-o'-lantern mushrooms, wild jack-o'-lantern mushrooms that you took genetic samples from, I may add. So you side fruited one of the bags and you top fruited another bag. I've grown reishi in a bucket on oak sawdust and was semi-successful with the experiment. It yielded three beautiful fat reishi shelves out of the side of the bucket and a couple of salamander looking antlers or conks on the inside walls of the bucket. So we had a side fruit and a top fruit simultaneously, but most of the grow was contaminated beyond that. I posted some pictures of my grow on a subreddit dedicated to mushroom growing and a lot of people had never heard of the bucket tech. So I guess you can fruit reishi either from the side of the bucket where it will develop as a shelf or you can also fruit it upwards, as a lot of people do, where it will yield in an antler-like appearance. So in regards to side fruiting or top fruiting your mushrooms, how do you know when to do which? So it's, it's whether you're trying to fruit a mushroom, you wanna consider it's, a, it's natural habitat. So like an oyster, for example, is kind of a shelf mushroom that it tends to fruit horizontally. Even if it's coming out of a stump, it, it might make a rosette. It might make a, like, it looks like a rosebud. So it can fruit on the top, but generally it'll try fruiting out the side. So you would want to try to mimic its natural behavior. Uh, reishi tends to fruit out of the sides of trees. So it's also a shelf mushroom. Um, but there's like uh, Piopino is one of my favorites. It has the standard mushroom stem and cap, and it likes to fruit out the top. If you're looking at agaricus, that's the common button mushroom or portobello, those prefer to be growing vertically. So you, you kind of want to just consider the natural growth habit. Uh, and, and about that, that jack-o'-lantern, that was a fun project. There's two species of glow-in-the-dark mushroom grown. One would be the omphalotus. I forgot the species of that one, but the other one was is Panella stypticus and they're bioluminescent. So if you're in a very, very dark spot, if you go into a closet, turn off all your lights at night, and it's so, so dark that you can't see the, your hand in your front of your face, 
you might be able to see a faint greenish glow. And it's, it's fascinating and also a little mystifying because at some stages the mycelium will grow and then the next day it won't, or will glow and then the next day it won't be glowing. The, the mushroom gills and the mushroom caps tend to glow a little bit, but it's, it's, I think there's some science to be done about that. Why, why is it glowing? What causes it to glow and how come it does sometimes and, and sometimes not? It's really fascinating. So yeah, the, the jack-o'-lantern mushroom is a poisonous mushroom and I'm cultivating that one just out of pure interest. So the jack-o'-lantern mushrooms are noted for their bioluminescent properties. They're faintly bioluminescent. They're not quite as overtly bioluminous as the long exposure photography images on the internet would lead one to believe. But what fascinates me and so many others around the world is that there's no current understanding or scientific rationale for why these mushrooms exhibit bioluminescence. And in the same vein, there's no current understanding for why mushrooms in the wild produce psilocybin. There are innumerable baffling mysteries of nature incarnate in the mushroom kingdom. And that's endlessly fascinating and inspiring to us mycophiles. Uh, so we just talked about bioluminescent where the mushroom glows intrinsically, which the, the mechanism I think is, is pretty well understood, but like you were saying, the why is not. Um, there's another phenomenon called fluorescence and that can be, you know, insects or animals, but there are a lot of fluorescent fungi that it, it's kind of gotten popular recently in the, in the mycology world where you basically would take a, um, a UV light. There's different wavelengths. You go out at night with a UV light and look for things that, that flash back at you, either greens or whites or blues. And that's kind of a, a new novelty in, in the mycology world right now. So you might want to pick up a fluorescent light and go walking around at night during mushroom season, document what you find. So as far as documentation, you want to consider using iNaturalist. It's an app that you can upload photos of, of biology and you, it will document the place and the time and what you found. And, and the AI is pretty surprisingly good. If you post a picture of a tree or a plant, it will probably tell you what it is, even an insect. It's, it's quite amazing. Another one that you want to look up is it's a website called Mushroom Observer. If you're finding a mushroom, take a picture of the top of the cap, a side, a profile view. Um, the gills is really important. Maybe a spore print. Real scientists, like uh, university scientists, use that data to analyze climate change and just map where the biology is. And I am beyond excited for the upcoming rainy season here in Southern Mexico, which will yield a bounty of tens of thousands of different types of mushrooms from Veracruz to Oaxaca to here in Chiapas and numerous other regions of central and Southern Mexico. There is a plethora of mycoflora lying dormant in the forests and mountains and jungles down here, waiting only for the impending sustained deluge to bring them forth. So you've got a bit of a laboratory set up behind you. We're doing this on Zoom, so our listeners at home can understand what we're working with and what you got going on. Can you walk our listeners through some of the lab equipment on display behind you? Um, the setup behind me is my laboratory, and this is part of the two-day class. And so, so students will learn how to use a still air box, which is a staple if you're a home cultivator. It's, it's kind of a must-have. And behind me is laminar flow hoods. So they are a high efficiency particulate air filter, and there's a fan that blows 
the ambient air through that filter and the air that comes out of the filter is as close to sterile as, as reasonable as, as you can reasonably get. So working in front of that fan, it's blowing clean air across the workstation. So if there's any dirt on my hands or my face, it's blowing it away from my workstation. And so, so the two day class students do a lot of work in front of these flow hoods. Um, and we, we go through things like serial dilutions, which you, you'll see over on the side of the screen, just diluting spores or contaminated liquid cultures. It's a really awesome filtration technique, uh, pretty, pretty advanced, but it's a uh, really simple to do. Um, we have, we, we play with liquid cultures. Um, syringes is a really big tool in mycology. It really reduces a lot of contamination risk An auger plate with mycelium growing on it. This is like really the lab standard green spawn and dowel spawn. Dowel spawn is really interesting because you can take wooden dowels, grow mycelium on it and drill them into wooden logs outdoors. So you can kind of do an out, outdoor culture with um, these lab techniques. Um, one, one thing that I wanted to also point out is as you're planning your, your mushroom forays, looking for mushrooms, the best thing that you could do would be to catch those genetics on a, on an auger plate, but maybe a step down from that, that wouldn't take any very many tools is just grab some foil or a piece of paper and make a spore print. So you can take a fresh mushroom and cut the stipe off and place that cap on a piece of paper or, or foil and leave it for a few hours to maybe overnight. And you can catch those spores and that you can uh, carry with you. You can save it. You can use that to cultivate mushrooms. You can use that to create a genetic library. So it's a pretty low, uh, low startup cost. And you can actually trap those genetics without really any skill either. I'm very keen on building a culture bank and a library from some of the many wild specimens down here. Last year, during the rainy season, I had a chance to go foraging with a local Totsil Mayan friend, and he pointed out so many unrecognizable types of fungi to me, ones that I had walked right past without noticing. There were numerous different types of amanitas, brilliant yellow and purple coral mushrooms, polypores, translucent blue fungi, and, and my Mayan friend only knew the names of many of the mushrooms in his local Totsil Mayan language. I find that the literature or scientific canon of mycology here and in many places around the world is limited to a handful of academic treatises and dissertations. The knowledge is not very accessible to normal people and everyday citizen scientists. It's ensconced in the language of academia and research, whereby contemporary Mexican and American and other cultural society citizens don't have convenient access to mushroom knowledge. Although iNaturalist and similar platforms are starting to change that, I find that many indigenous cultures around the world, which possess extremely valuable and time-honed knowledge and wisdom related to the natural world, and certainly mushrooms as an extension of that, this immeasurably valuable body of knowledge is waning as globalization accelerates and more and more younger generations of indigenous people become partially or fully indoctrinated and acculturated to capitalist and consumerist values. It's a truly global phenomenon from Bhutan, where kids are moving out of family monastic traditions that are thousands of years old into the world of social media and European sporting franchises, to here in Mexico, where younger people move into the cities and learn English and Spanish and 
idolize pop culture icons like Justin Bieber and start getting down with Snapchat filters. And meanwhile, thousands of years of wisdom and connection with nature is falling on deaf ears in many cases. So one of my goals is to be able to help build a bridge between the rapidly waning ancestral knowledge and wisdom of increasingly remote cultures and the everyday mainstream citizen of the Occidental world. Because I believe there's a symbiosis available when average citizens recognize the value of conserving and protecting nature. I mean, the properties of rare and exotic fungi that are known to Totsil Mayan herbalists in the highlands of Chiapas can be inherently valuable and meaningful to urban residents in Los Angeles, Paris, Tokyo, Jakarta, and beyond. And in turn, the recognition of this value can be incentivized to help respect the intelligence and the dignity of indigenous cultures and to help preserve and defend their autonomy and to conserve and defend the biodiversity and the natural ecosystems in which they are embedded and on which they thrive. Yeah, that's really great. Like you have an amazing opportunity that you're interacting with indigenous people and gathering some of that information. If you can record that on video or at least audio so that you can capture that information, but then you have the responsibility of paying back. Like what, what we in the Western culture have a habit of doing is going in, learning, taking it for our own and profiting off of it. But then you have the responsibility working to repay the Mazatec people for the destruction that was caused as psilocybin was basically discovered there in, to the white people. They went to the Mazatec people and gathered the, the information of, of what uh, psilocybin mushrooms are and brought it to the Western culture and then really destroyed that whole culture because of it. And there is a company that's trying to pay that back a little bit. And that's, that's interesting to me. And you have the opportunity of gathering information and, and planning ahead so that you can repay those people. And that might be something like if you're able to collect genetics and we make a genetic library and somehow set up a repayment plan so that they, they get the benefit of it, not just whoever discovers a, a novel molecule. This is such a huge point and one that needs to be grappled with collectively as many companies and profit-oriented gremlins join the ranks of the psychedelic or the shroom boom, which is a grotesque label that is nonetheless frequently applied to what's happening in the world of mushrooms. The warp speed at which public interest in psilocybin and psychedelic therapy and other mycology-related innovation is moving has created a mob of unscrupulous practitioners and gold diggers who are consciously or unconsciously engaging in neo-colonialism and theft of indigenous intellectual property. And this is a massively important dialogue that absolutely must continuously be promoted and debated and unpacked as the mushroom revolution accelerates. I see the role of mushrooms in the future of the world as either a profound force for decolonization, which we're seeing incumbent in communities like the POC fungi community in San Diego, with the Diaspora Psychedelic Society in Jamaica, the Sabina Project, many more. I also see mushrooms and psilocybin being co-opted by extraction-oriented, profit-driven tech bro companies that have no interest in changing the status quo and who would rather accelerate the accumulation of wealth for a small number of private citizens while drawing from the global commons. And I really think this is where we are at right now as a collective. And most people in the world aren't even aware it's happening. 
or that there is this chasm between the contrarian stakeholders who are rapidly scaling their operations on both sides of the decolonization versus filthy money divide. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So in the last two years, we've had in the range of 200 in-person students um, and probably less than 10% of them are not white people, which is, I think, kind of strange. I, I, I think that's unusual. So I'm, I'm wondering why that is like, is there just not an interest or um, like, am I doing something that prevents other cultures from, from joining my community? I, I, I wonder what that's all about. There's definitely a surging interest and demand in communities of color for psychedelic therapy and for mushroom cultivation and medicinal mushroom knowledge. Shout out to Oakland Haife for his work in intersectional mycology in the Oakland area and beyond. Darren LeBaron for his contributions to the psychedelic diaspora movement and ongoing investment in POC communities to help spread mushroom cultivation therapy practices and access. Shout out to Robin Devine of Black People Trip. Shout out to the Sabina Project for their promotion of entheogenic equity and access to communities of color. And I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the lens of race and marginalization is absolutely not separate from the mushroom worldview and the mushroom industry and the ability to connect with the divine. Some people say mushrooms are absolutely for everyone and race has nothing to do with it. But I disagree in that our world and our global society are so, are so codependent and counterbalanced and interwoven that we have to proceed in a holistic sense, considering all of these interconnected parts of our global ecosystem, which historical abuse and violence towards people of color is absolutely a legacy that needs to be recognized, accounted for, atoned for and undesigned. And I think the psychedelic community and the mushroom revolution is a great place for that dialogue to take center stage. I'm really grateful that we have this opportunity to have a discourse about some of these concepts. And before we wrap up today, Zach, I'd love to hear about any ongoing projects that you're involved with or upcoming workshops that you're putting on. I know you have a two-day in-person cultivation workshop coming up April 16th to 19th, I believe, in Denver, Colorado. Can you expand on that and some of the other current projects that you're invested in? Yeah, well, so one thing I would be interested in, if, if there's anyone in who's, who would be interested in teaching a Spanish-speaking class with me, um, I would be really interested in that. My Spanish is moderate, but I don't feel capable of teaching the level, level of technicality that I do currently in English. I would love to translate that into Spanish. Um, so if anyone is willing to cooperate on that, that would be a really fun project to work on as well. Currently, I think we only have two or three events currently. Um, my busy season is in the summer. So do most of the classes in like late fall and over the winter, early spring. So we're kind of coming to the near the end of, of my teaching season. So um, jump in there if you can. We had someone last week flew in from Mexico to join the class, which was really fun. Um, I'm trying to scale up into having a small commercial mushroom farm just to explore that idea. Uh, currently, I've just been doing the teaching, but yeah, I think that's really it. I'm, I'm just really trying to spread the knowledge of, of cultivation. And I'd be happy to coach anybody over email or Instagram or I'm not all about charging for classes. It's just that, you know, doing the classes, it's, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of preparation and 
I want it to be something that I enjoy doing and money helps a little bit with that. That's why I charge for the classes, but I'm, I'm happy to help people, you know, get, get over bumps. I'm going to definitely need some ongoing cultivation support personally. So you best believe I'll be sliding into the DMs of Mushroom Cult Pro. Indubitably, Zach Kaiser of Mushroom Cult. That's www.mushroomcult.net and at Mushroom Cult Pro on Instagram. Thanks so much for swinging by Michaelpreneur podcast and dropping knowledge on mushroom cultivation and ethics and culture and all of that good juju. It's been a real pleasure, Zach. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many micropreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the microverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up. At Micopreneur Podcast, that's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Micopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Micopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Micopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. And while you're here, go ahead and subscribe. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you.